This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. A couple of decades ago, I was sounding off to my aunt about how my father was behaving. And she said, the thing is, Roz, he was so damaged by being sent away to Cranbrook, it scarred him. Cranbrook was and is a minor public school that my great-grandfather managed to afford for my grandfather, and my grandfather sent his son after him. And I told her, for heaven's sake, that was half a century ago. Isn't it about time he got over it? But do you get over it? Did I just not understand? Should we feel more compassion for men who were sent to boarding school, some when they were only eight? Men like Boris Johnson and David Cameron and Richard Beard, who is the author of Sad Little Men, Private Schools and the Ruin of England. He was sent to a prep school at the age of eight and later to Radley College, one of Britain's most famous public schools, and he was educated at the same time as Boris Johnson and David Cameron. They too went to prep schools before going to Eton. Richard, welcome to The Bunker. Hi, Roz. This feels like a cathartic book and sometimes quite an angry one. Had you articulated how you felt about your schooling before? Uh, not at all. I, I avoided the subject like like the plague. It's my 11th book um, and nothing like this features in the previous 10. I thought it was something I ought to, to avoid because uh, I hadn't really come to terms about the best best way to, to speak about it. And it just felt like special pleading and something that I didn't really want to address. I mean, that's one of the ways in which the education works on you is you're supposed to kind of leave it behind and go on and be successful and not examine too closely any of the other side effects. So I hadn't dealt with this material at all. And then in the first lockdown, I just realized that there were there were a lot of issues here to deal with. And I started looking at them more closely in that time that opened up to everybody. You still live very close to Radley, don't you? And that was what you were doing during the first lockdown, visiting the school. Well, that was one of the reasons for realising that there were issues that needed addressing is that I found myself living, or I, I am living, I'm still living there, half a mile from, from the school. And although I can trace the reasons why I'm here, I had never really thought about, you know, well, are there other reasons? Are, am I trying to, am I like a trout going upstream back to the source? There is a public footpath which goes through the school. So there's no kind of trespassing involved in going to take exercise there. It goes through the main gates, right up through the centre of the school with the playing fields on one side, the impressive buildings on the other. And when it was completely empty, it became a very good place to reflect and to reflect on my own school days. And there was space to do that because there was very little activity there. And to think about how that had affected me as an adult and of course, I was seeing my own behaviours repeated in the actions of the Prime Minister, and not just this Prime Minister, but the previous Prime Minister, but one, Cameron Johnson, who started at these schools at the same time as I did. What's it like to leave home at such an early age? 
tell us a bit about how it feels when you're dropped off at the boarding house at the age of eight, perhaps leaving home for really the first time. Well, I think there are some important factors which probably apply to, to most people who go to school very early. I went on two days after my eighth birthday and most boarders will be told in advance how wonderful it's going to be. We're also going to have a great fun. We're going to meet new friends. So there's a lot of pressure to enjoy it from the moment that you arrive. And in fact, from the moment that you arrive as a very small child, the first instinct is to want to run away with your parents and go get back in the car and go back home. That's the home life that you know. So straight away, there's this conflict between what adults are telling you and what you know to be the emotional truth. The emotional truth is, this is making me really homesick and I'd rather be at home. And yet the adult truth is, this is really good for you. And trying to reconcile those two different uh, perspectives becomes a large part of acclimatizing to that new environment. And you're usually in a dormitory. You have, or at this time anyway, during the 70s, 80s, you had one soft toy that was permitted, that was labelled for you. And with all these boys who you'd never met before, what were those first nights like? Well, I think the very first time there probably is a certain amount of excitement, but then the same thing is going to happen three times a year, probably six times a year. Going back after half terms didn't seem any better than going back at the beginning of a term. In those days, there weren't a great number of nights out during the term, so there might be some days out, but these watershed moments of going back from home to the school felt very inhospitable. I mean, these beds are, you know, iron, iron framed beds in a dormitory, really quite close to the other boys all of whom coming back sort of smelling freshly of home, all of whom are going through their own sadnesses of being separated from their parents again. Just a sense for the first, at least for the first 24 hours of explicit sadness, which was then quickly swallowed up in all the activities of the school. And of course, this very practiced denial, which becomes part of the experience. You learn how to deny it and to deny your own feelings about it so that you can move on, so that you can be what seems to be happy. The effects will be felt later on and maybe many years later on in life. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about because it's quite hard to grasp, but the suffering is the point in this case, that separation from your parents makes you a stronger more self-reliant individual in the world of the public school. How does that process work? You say after the first 24 hours, you get caught up in the all the numerous activities that you have to do. Do you ever process that or does it pop up at different times, that loneliness? Well, I think it, it creates a uh, habits of behaviour which then become a kind of default position. One obvious one, which we've already talked about, is to have a feeling, even very strong feelings like homesickness, but later there might be strong feelings of anger or strong feelings of fear, which straight away from a very early age, we're learning in those environments just to completely deny and to ignore. So emotion is relegated as a force for, for action in life. That's one coping behaviour. So perhaps you could talk a bit about, for example, how sport becomes the acceptable form of emotion in a public school. Well, I think there is a pressure. I mean, there's not just sport. I mean, sport is very important. And, and I, I was very lucky because I was, I was good at sport. And that gives you an immediate status in the school. And status becomes one way of surviving within that environment. If you can stay near the top, you will have a better time of it than if you are near the bottom. And boys of that age are incredibly aware of status, not just in my memory, but in the academic literature as well. And also in the fictional literature we have, if you think of Lord of the Flies, 
for example, which is a book which often comes up in this context. So that status is, is important and it can be achieved by success on the sports field to a lesser extent, but still a significant extent by success in the classroom. And being good at these things becomes almost a replacement for love. You can show your parents you're doing well. And if you're doing well, you're not feeling sad. And if you're not feeling sad, you're not contradicting their sense that it's all for the best. So actually achieving that status becomes very important in this psychodrama that's going on. And I think you then see this later in adult behaviors where it's important to be at the top. It's important to keep moving on and to be ambitious, to get to prime minister. And I recognize that in in leaders in all sorts of fields in British life, not just in politics. So this baptism of fire is a preparation for great things. The idea is that once you've done this, you are capable of anything of whether, you know, in the past, whether that meant going to run part of India or being prime minister now. Does it give that feeling of invincibility, which I sometimes seem to identify in people who have been to public school, but it's effective in doing that? I think that needs qualifying. You're not capable of anything. You're capable of a very limited number of things. And one of those things is probably going to rule parts of India in the 19th century, which is not very useful in the 21st century. Although you're capable of, for example, rising up in um, an international law firm or in the Conservative Party, you're not capable of maintaining a connected adult relationships. Unfortunately, in this country, these limited areas of life tend to be where the power resides and also where the wealth resides. So therefore, there's this imbalance in what actually our capabilities are and what our apparent achievements are. English culture has been preoccupied with boarding schools for a long time. We see it in things like Mallory Towers, which I used to devour as a child, in Trebizond, in Harry Potter now. It's a literary device in children's literature, which you can understand because exciting things can't happen to you unless you're away from your parents. But do we romanticise in Britain the boarding school too much? Well, I think there is that romantic stream. I mean, one of one of the reasons why it has a strong presence in the culture is that a lot of cultural figures take advantage of the of this head start in life to to rise to to positions of prominence and also um it's still true there are investigations at the moment going into um class um imbalances in publishing for example in tv in film and therefore people who are making cultural artifacts are often products of this system or have had contact with products of this system and therefore it sort of self propagates in that way I mean, there is a romantic strand to it in the sense that young adult literature, children's literature, the first thing you tell a writer of YA literature is kill the parents. It was a life at Radley. It still is in some respects without women or girls. I mean, there were some females in your life, but hardly any. What was it like to be with, without women for two thirds of your life? Well, I think you only discover what that's like afterwards. You go off to university and realise that those of us who'd been in boys' boarding schools are ill-equipped. And I don't think there's any other way of saying that we just simply didn't have the required knowledge to act as decent male human beings and therefore would compensate in various ways, some too timid, some too aggressive. But it was something which become, becomes apparent afterwards is that all the women who who certainly at a campus school like like Radley that you see within the walls they have something to do with the school so already there's a kind of inauthenticity to that um, and, in, and historically public schools have tried to keep women out of the schools as, as much as possible certainly in the 19th century so that legacy still remained uh, and I think in the end it did, does lead if I just put it 
bluntly to, to sexist attitudes. We were judged constantly by other boys, by mostly male teachers. It was male opinion that mattered to us. And then when you go out into the world, it remains male opinion that matters. And that becomes something which either needs to be fought against, or if it's not fought against, it will stay as a default attitude. And I think that's a problem. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What traits do you see in Cameron and Johnson that you think betray their early life at public schools? Well, it's, I mean, it's difficult to say because something comes up every day where I think, yes, I, I recognise that. Probably most often, I mean, there are, pro- there are categories of behaviour. Most often it comes up in this idea of reinvention, which is the consequence of essentially not telling the whole truth about things, is you can reinvent yourself. So say one thing one day, say one thing the next. Uh, we were able to do that because we had two distinct lives, home life, school life. And then even at school, every term, you could reinvent yourself because there's no continuity of your life narrative during, during the holidays. And also from that beginning of hiding your feelings, the way to do that is to put on a, a front, put on a, a brave face. So I think boarding school children become very good at doing that. And, and putting on a front is another way of saying lying, it's not being true to yourself. Not only are they very good at that, or we very, I'm very good at that too, but we can also do it very casually because we can make up another legend for ourselves tomorrow. And this sort of as Le Carre pointed out again and again in his books, there is this reason why public school boys turn out to be very good spies, because they can quite casually make up stories about themselves and, and, and about their own lives. So I see that happen a lot. False promises are, are part of that. I also see this kind of disregard for the concerns of anyone who is not really in the class from which these political leaders come, is the rest of the country doesn't really exist. The rest of the country is a fantasy because we have no experience that doesn't come accidentally almost. And we just move between these fortresses of of privilege. And although lip service is paid to the rest of the country, it has no real existence, I think. And, uh, And this seems apparent in all sorts of pronouncements which are made about leveling up or about universal credit or about social care which are just lip service because I see in I, I see there's no genuine connection to what that means throughout the country. And the only way I think to counter that is to show that you spend you know, a, a lot of your life after these schools addressing these areas of ignorance. And I don't see any evidence in, say, Cameron or Johnson, they've spent much time doing that at all. As you point out in the book, old Radleyans frequently send their sons to Radley and they send their sons, and so the tradition continues. Why, if public schools do cause so much suffering and unhappiness, does that continue? What are the influences that make someone feel that because they went to a public school, they must send their son or now potentially daughter there? Well, I see it as a kind of cult, really, is that once you're in, there are certain values which have been drummed into you. What keeps the families in, it's a mixture of denial. So the the products of these schools don't want to admit to the suffering. They will admit to the success, but not to the suffering. Um, And therefore, in denial about that, they can then send their children there. They also don't have a great deal of empathy for their own children because they've been taught not not to feel empathy, so they can send their children off again. 
And I think the other aspect of this is fear, is that once you've been brought up in these schools, when you have your own children, and I, I felt a version of this with my children, which fortunately, I think for them, I was able to resist. It's very tempting to, again, fall into a default position where you think, well, it's kind of worked okay for me. So I'm going to do the same with my children. And this fear of any system, which is not this very privileged, protected, gated communities in these private schools. I think this isn't just the big boarding schools, it's private schools generally where generations go through the private schools. This fear of any other type of education that actually everywhere else is dangerous. And somehow this is a protected space and it's the only place where your children will be safe. And this is untrue, but it's, it's like, like a lot of kind of cult beliefs. It propagates itself down through the generations. But these public schools tell you they have changed. The kids have more freedom, more autonomy. There is, you know, there is more likely to be girls there, although not at Radley. There is an emphasis on fun rather than discipline. Is the world you describe at Radley in the 70s and 80s in the past, or are these schools, do you think, still a corrosive influence on British life? Will we see in the next 30 years the results of public school education still playing out in our politics? One of the things I trace in the book is how every generation says it used to be worse, but it's better now in the private schools. There's a famous instance of Winston Churchill uh, joking about the fact that he was told that school would be a happy place for him and that as opposed to in his parents' generation, all the kids clamoured to go back to school at the end of the holidays. And then he famously had a horrific time at Harrow and he is being ironic about these changes, doesn't think that they do change. So I have a certain amount of scepticism about how effective these changes are. There was one major change in 1989 when the Children Act came in, and this does mean that essentially human rights legislation now applies within British private schools, which is an advance. It does mean that there's more vigilance over the welfare of the children and that the children's voices must be heard. In terms of the long-term effects, we won't really know that until 30 years' time. And then if 30 years' time, boys from British private schools and girls from British private schools are going to be our leaders, then, then already something hasn't changed. Those inequalities within the country are still there. But we'll only see then what attitudes they adopted while they're at school now. I would suggest that in boarding schools, those issues of separation from parents are still, however comfortable it is, those still exist. And there is still this social segregation. And the more expensive the school, the more segregated it seems to be from the wider community. And I don't see how that can really help us become a modern progressive country if people from these segregated schools remain in charge in 30 years time. So I hope it's not a question we'll be asking. What would you say to the parents who are sending their kids to these schools now? I went to Mumsnet briefly this morning and I searched for a number of well-known public schools and I saw dozens of apparently happy mothers telling us that their sons were loving the boarding school experience and gently competing with each other about whether Eton or Harrow or Radley or one of the others was better. What would you say to them? Well, one of the schools this year has broken the £45,000 barrier for a, for a year's fees. And it's very difficult if you're paying £45,000 a year for your children's education to put on mum's net that it's really not going very well, I imagine. I think it's pro probably too late because the parents are, are drawn into this delusion that they want the children to be in as well, that it is for the best, that the outcomes will justify the means that, you know, look at these pathways which open up. If you've already bought into that at about £45,000 a year at the top end, 
you know, if you've already bought into that, you're unlikely to be hearing about the problems in other areas of life, which are now academically recorded in the literature, which is coming out, particularly of the psycho. Uh, analytical community and in research in universities by sociologists. So you're unlikely to want to hear about that. You're unlikely to want to hear that your children are missing out on all sorts of other areas of life. So I don't think there's much to be said from the parents because they want to believe it's all for the best as well. And they want to believe it with £45,000 worth of force. Richard, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks, Ros, for inviting me. Sad Little Men is published by Penguin. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Roz Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>